0: 2 Thessalonians, 2 <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, we talked last week, we began a study last week, and uh, we showed that there's a shortage of healthy churches in our day today, and we'll be reading out of 2 Thessalonians here just in a, in a second, but um, this church wasn't without problems, no church is, okay, but it was a very good template for us to follow as a church. And Paul points that out, Timothy points that out, Silvanus points that out over and over again in their correspondence with this young church. Remember, this was not a church of 75 years. This was a church of, you know, barely 75 weeks. Okay, probably not even 75 weeks, about a year old. And so they're very young Christians who were saved out of a pagan background. And it's amazing to me how quickly Satan can infiltrate. They were, spent time with the Apostle Paul. He taught them basically everything he had time to teach them. And um, he wanted them to know that they had to continue to grow in their faith and in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, this morning as we read, I'd ask you you stand in honor of God's word. We're just going to read a couple verses here. But Second 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So it says, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you, in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Father, we ask that you'd bless this word to, to our hearts this morning. Give us hearts to understand, minds to hear, ears to hear, hearts to understand. And we just pray you'd bless our time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Most of you know that we have a Bible study on Wednesday night. If you don't, you do now. We have a Bible study that meets every Wednesday night. And uh, uh, we encourage you to come out. The reason is just because we teach the Word of God in the Bible study, whether it's myself, Ken, Kai, whoever's teaching. They're teaching through the Word of God. And it's important to bring yourself under... The teaching of God's word, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. And um, we're studying, by the way, the, the New Testament book of Jude, small little book. I thought, well, I'll fly through this in four weeks. No way. Okay, there's a lot in this book. And we're finding out many ways that we can maintain a, a spiritually healthy life personally, but also a spiritually healthy life in the church. And the letter points out some of these things. And um, before we get into the outline this morning for our message, I just want to share something I shared on Wednesday night. And if, if you want to hear the entire message, you can hear it on the Apple iTunes podcast there or get the free church app. You can get that. It's free. And you can listen to the message, the outlines on there as well. Um, but have you ever read something that was written a long time ago? And when you read it, you just go, wow, this is for today. This just applies. Well, this is what I'm going to share with you. And I shared this with the Wednesday night group. So if you're hearing it again, um, God bless you. Just <laughs> be patient with me. But uh, this was written by a pastor, an author, back in the 19th century. so a long time ago. And his name was J.C. Ryle. And uh, he was a 19th century Anglican bishop. And he penned these words about the church of his day, the Christians of his day. And he put it in a. They put it in a, a publication called Principles for Churchmen. But it's scary when you when you hear this. When I read this to you, it's scary how uh, relevant it is for today. And so he wrote this in 1884. And he was he was disturbed. He was lamenting the idea that. Um, what he called jellyfish Christianity exists. (laughs) That's his term for it, jellyfish Christianity. And here's what he said. Listen to what he said. It's kind of a lengthy quote, so be patient. But I think it's very applicable to what we're going to look at this morning. He says, One plague of our age is the widespread dislike to what men are pleased to call dogmatic theology. In the place of it, the idol of the day, is a kind of jellyfish Christianity, a Christianity without a bone, without a muscle, without any sinew, without any distinct teaching about the atonement or the work of the Spirit or justification or the way of peace with God. It's a, it's a vague, foggy, misty Christianity of which the only watchwords seem to be You must be liberal and kind. You must condemn no man's doctoral views. You must consider everybody is right and nobody's wrong. And this creedless kind of religion, we are told, is to give us peace of conscience. He continues. He says, and not to be satisfied with it in a sorrowful dying world is a proof That you are very narrow minded. Then he says, satisfied indeed. Such a religion might possibly do for unfallen angels, but to tell sinful dying men and women with the blood of our father Adam in our veins. To be satisfied with it is an insult to common sense and a mockery of our distress. We need something far better than this. We need the blood of Christ. The disdain for being dogmatic in your beliefs is an epidemic, he says, which is now doing great harm, especially among young people. It produces what I venture to call jellyfish Christianity in the land. That is, Christianity without a bone, without muscle, without power. A jellyfish is a pretty graceful object when it floats on the sea, contracting and expanding like a little delicate, transparent umbrella. Yet the same jellyfish, when cast on the shore, is a mere helpless lump without any capacity for movement, without any capacity for self-defense or self-preservation. Alas, it is a vivid type of much of the religion of this day, he says, of which the leading principle is this, no dogma, no distinct tenets, no positive, which he means uh, beneficial, no beneficial doctrines. And then he says this, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity, They have not definite opinions. They belong to no school or party. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year. Sermons without an edge, without a point, without a corner. They're smooth as billiard balls, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. He says, we have legions of jellyfish young men annually turned out from our universities armed with a few scraps of second-hand philosophy who think it a mark of cleverness and intellect to have no decided opinions about anything in religion and to be utterly unable to make up their minds as to what is Christian truth. They live apparently in a state of suspense, like Muhammad's uh, fabled coffin hanging between heaven and earth. And last, worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respectable church-going people who have no distinct and definite views about anything in theology. They cannot discern things that differ any more than a colorblind blind person can distinguish colors. They think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Everything is true and nothing is false. All sermons are good and none are bad. Every clergyman is sound and no clergyman is unsound. They are tossed to and fro like children by every wind of doctrine, often carried away by any new excitement and any new sensational movement, ever ready for new things because they have no firm grasp of the old, and utterly unable to render a reason for the hope that is in them. He says, never was it so important for laymen to hold systematic views of truth, and for ordained ministers to enunciate dogma very clearly and distinctly in their teaching, end quote. Christianity, jellyfish Christianity, is very much alive and well today on planet Earth. It's a Christianity that has no uh, backbone. It it shows no spine, no nerve. People who refuse to stand up for what others might, because of what others might do or what they might say behind their back, and they just don't take a stand on anything. And so it's really a a Christianity with no courage No fortitude, you could say. No perseverance, no willingness to say what needs to be said. In love, obviously. No matter the consequences that comes to them. We have that everywhere. And it comes from jellyfish creatures. Jellyfish preachers preaching jellyfish sermons. Producing jellyfish Christians and jellyfish churches. And as I said Wednesday night, I do not want our church to be a jellyfish church. If you're looking for a jellyfish church, go somewhere else, please. Because this is not a jellyfish church. We stand for the word of God. We stand proudly and firmly upon the word of God and what it says. And we make apology to no one. And if you're offended by that, I was going to say I'm sorry, but I just said I wouldn't apologize. So So what happens is we have these things floating around the church, these jellyfish that don't have a spine for anything, and they refuse to be dogmatic on anything. they they rather be diplomatic. Let's just link arms with everybody and sing Kumbaya. And they're diplomatic virtually on every single subject in which they preach because they're afraid to be called out. They're afraid to be labeled. They're afraid to be extreme or canceled in our culture today. Or, God forbid, the worst of all, to be labeled as intolerant. We live in the most intolerant, quote, tolerant society I know of today. And so they preach these smooth sermons that would make a cue ball proud. No edge, no point, nothing. That would cause any discomfort to anyone. It wouldn't make any sinner angry. It surely doesn't edify any saint, and they stand up week after week and serve jellyfish sermons, creating jellyfish Christians that are happy to be in a jellyfish church. Well, last week, we looked at the introduction here, and we covered the first two points of our outline. A healthy church is distinct from the world. It's set apart from the world. He says there in verse 1, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, to the what? to the church. And we talked about that word, "ecclesia." What's it mean? Called out ones. You're called out to be separate, to be sanctified. And it's referring to their relationship to God as a, uh, as a church. What is our relationship to God? It should be solely to God. We shouldn't be intermixing the world. And then secondly, we, we saw that a healthy church is bathed In grace and peace, those twin sisters that Paul likes to use so many times in his writings, the grace and peace of the gospel. And that's what he says there in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he referring to? He's referring to their resources and where they come from. They come from God. If you're going to live the Christian life, you better be depending upon God. You're not going to be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to be more spiritual. It doesn't work that way. And so he says, first of all, you have grace, which charis in the original language, it means God's unmerited favor. And it's shown to us as believers through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Grace means that God bestowed all of the the blessings of salvation. Think of all the blessings we have in our salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of our sin, a complete, justified, right standing with God. What's He do? He gives that as a free gift to us who deserve not that gift. We deserve His wrath because of our sin. But He gives us what we could never merit unmerited favor. And then we talked about peace, which refers to the total well being but especially the spiritual well-being that comes through being reconciled to God through Christ. You know, if you're listening to this message and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, um, you don't have that peace with God that we just sang about. You don't have it. It's impossible for you to have it outside of Christ. And so he broke down all of those barriers and he allowed us To come to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that having all of our sins completely forgiven by God's grace gives us that inner peace. That helps us sleep at night. It should. Even in the most dire trials in our life, we know that, hey, wait a minute. I, I, I am in Christ. Nothing comes into my life. Nothing can touch my life outside of God's hand. Well, that brings us to our third point here today, verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. A healthy church has an increasing faith in God. It doesn't say stagnant. It doesn't just level. No, it's a growing faith. And by thanking God for their growth, both in faith and love, as we're going to see in the next point, He's not congratulating them. He's not tapping them on the head and say, hey, that a boy, Thessalonians, you're doing a great job. He's not thanking them. Do you see that there in the text? We always, we ought always to give thanks. Does he say to you? No. To who? To God. To God. For you. See, sometimes we get carried away and, kind of being, I think, too, too liberal with our words of encouragement to people, and we're, oh, brother, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. No, let's thank God for our brother or sister in Christ. Thank God that he's given them a gift to play an instrument or, or sing or, or teach or whatever it is. Thank God for that. You don't need to pat the person on the head who's doing the serving. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we like to thank people, but it's ultimately God who deserves the thanks. And you notice there it says, we ought, oh fellow. It, re- it refers to a, a deep obligation, a debt, a responsibility. This is not optional. Do you know, as believers, we don't have the option of giving thanks to God for our brothers and sisters in Christ? You're probably saying, well, I can think of a couple. I'm not... <laughs> Yeah, we all can. But that's the point. We can't do it on our own. Because, to be very honest with you, none of us are worthy of thanks anyway. We're just fallen sinners saved by God's grace. So the thanks ultimately belongs to God for the work that he's doing in these believers' lives. This growth that he's experiencing... That they are experiencing, he's, he's not thanking them, he's saying, thanking God. Let's put the spotlight where it belongs on God. And so pray for yourself, pray for your family members, pray for other Christians that, that God would increase faith in him and a love for others, because a healthy church has increased faith in God. I like at the end there, he says, we ought always to give thanks. And then he adds, as it is right. See it there? As is right. He has no choice but to always give thanks for them. doesn't matter what they were doing. He was bound under compulsion to do that, to give thanks to God. Now, he may have added this as his right because he had heard that the Thessalonians were, were protesting that his earlier praise. If you look back in our earlier studies, we went through that. And, and first that Thessalonians, when he, he praised them and said, oh, man, I'm so happy you're doing so well. Maybe someone felt a little weird about that. Do you ever feel weird when somebody comes up? and Oh, you, oh you're just so good. Oh, blah, blah. You know, go on and on and on. And they mean well. But you feel weird about it, right? It's just like, yeah, I don't like that kind of attention. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. I don't. You reflect it back to where? To God. Maybe they felt that way as Paul and Timothy and Silvanus were praising them in the first letter. And so here he says, hey, listen guys, it's right that I thank God for you. This is a good thing. Don't get your head too blown up. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about thanking God for you. So he's encouraging them that their growth in faith is evident. I mean, think about it. Faith alone. I mean, we come to God through initial faith in who? In Christ as our Lord and Savior. We don't save ourselves. It's God's work in our heart. We believe God's promise. And whosoever, the Bible says, believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Turn over to John 3. John 3.16, we know this verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever anyone believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And look at what it says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Maybe when you hear the gospel, if you're not a believer, you feel condemnation. Well, the condemnation is not coming from the gospel. The condemnation is coming from your own conscience, coming from your own sin. Because you're being confronted with the holiness of God and you're feeling condemned by that holiness. And God says, hey, you don't need to feel condemned. You can come to my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll make you white as snow. He'll wash away every sin that there ever was and there ever will be in your life. And guess what? It's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to take communion. You don't have to do anything. You simply put your faith, your trust in the risen Lord, in the one who died for your sins on Calvary, and the Bible says you will be saved. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the good news of the gospel, is it not? And then he says, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, guess what? You're condemned already. You're condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is not a one-time thing. We think of our salvation as this one-time event, and in effect it is. But we kind of dumb it down to this. Well, you know, yeah, I did that years ago. You know, we believed, and it's over with. Let's move on. I added Jesus to my life when I was three when I prayed the sinner's prayer in Sunday school. Why do we have to keep talking about it? We keep talking about it because our faith in God and the many promises of his word are supposed to grow. There should be some kind of a, a growing faith in our lives as Christians. We shouldn't be the same Christian we were last year as we are going to be next year. Our faith in God has to grow. Well, how does it grow? The difficult news is our faith grows usually through what? Through suffering, through trials, through persecution. Through all those things. You're cruising along in your Christian life and you're thinking, well, man, I'm trusting in Jesus and everything's cool. Bam, something happens. And you're confronted with some trial, something difficult. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's a family crisis. Maybe it's something beyond you can even handle or your ability to control. What do you do? What do you do when that happens? Well, I can tell you if you grumble and you complain and shake your fist at God and say, how dare you? I'm one of your children. And you start accusing God of not caring about you. What's going to happen? Your faith is going to shrink. It's going to shrink. It's not going to grow. It's going to shrink. But in those times of trial, in those times of tribulation, when even your faith doesn't make any sense, you call out to Him as your loving, gracious Heavenly Father, and you you trust in Him. You trust that He has your best interests at heart in this crisis. Your faith will grow, my friend. Your faith will grow as you see the sufficiency of his precious and magnificent promises lived out in your life. I mean, this is illustrated, really, in, in Israel's history, if you stop and think about it. What did God do with Israel in the Old Testament? You remember? God miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. You remember the story, right? Through the ten plagues. And what did he do? He, he opened up the Red Sea miraculously so that they could pass through, the Bible says, on dry land. It wasn't even muddy. Think of that. I mean, you haven't had a lot of rain, right? I mean, if you walk out on your lawn, it's going to be squishy. No, not the dry sea or the Red Sea. When God, when God parted those waters, it was, it was like they were walking on dry ground. And then What'd he do? He closed the sea back over as Pharaoh's armies and advancing troops were coming after Israel. And then they went three days, the Bible says, into the wilderness in Exodus 15, and they found no water. Remember the story? I mean, what a, what a great opportunity for them to go, Wow, well, let's just continue to trust the Lord. I mean, we trusted the Lord to get us away from our enemies, and look at what he did. He parted the sea. There was not even any mud, and we walked right through, and then he closed it back on our enemies. Here they are, three days removed. They don't find any water. What a great opportunity for them to continue to trust in the Lord. He just proved how mighty he was, how he delivered them, but what did the people do? They grumbled. They grumbled. They looked around at Moses. They got the leader and they said, hey, pal, what are you doing? You know, you brought us out of, out of Egypt and yeah, we went through the sea, but now we're out here, we're, we're going we're to die of thirst. They were grumbling at Moses, which really meant they were grumbling at who? At God, because God was, or Moses was God's representative. And what did the Lord do? I mean, any one of us probably would have said, you, you want to see some water? I'll show you some water. Zap, you know. Now you'll need some water. <laughs> now, the Lord responded graciously. He met their need. And he even gave them a, a further promise of protection. Hey, I got your back. I got, I, I'm going to protect you. what was the response to that? Further grumbling. Further grumbling. I mean, it's just amazing. But it's really not. Because we all find ourselves in this situation time and time again in our own lives, lest we be too quick to point the finger at Israel. They responded by further grumbling. And what did they do? They accused Moses of of bringing them out into the wilderness, not to kill them by thirst because now they had water, but to kill them by hunger. We don't have anything eat. What does God do? God graciously. Again, <laughs> the picture: God is a gracious God. God graciously responded by providing something called daily manna. Daily manna. But because of their continual grumbling. God eventually swore in his wrath that that generation would not enter into his rest. See, God is gracious, but don't presume on his grace. God is gracious, but you, you should not presume on his grace. Okay, I got, got away with it this time. Don't presume you'll get away with it the next time. After citing this judgment... Uh, Hebrews, in in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 12, it warns us. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Wow. Wow. When Paul says, your faith is growing abundantly, he uses a word there that is used only there in the New Testament in verse 3. It's the only place it's used. It speaks of vigorous growth. It speaks of superabundant growth. And as, as verse 4 mentions in 2 Thessalonians, this growth takes place in the midst of severe persecutions and severe afflictions. That's how we grow. So if you're facing a severe trial, and I know some of you are, some of you are in the mix of it. I I could not even comprehend being where you're at. But God does. God knows. And, and just just so you know, there are certain individuals in our church that just honestly As a pastor, I look at their lives and I'm blown away. Because they're going through so much hardship. And they're trying so hard to do the right thing. But they just keep getting slammed. One thing after another. That can't be easy. And yet they keep coming back. They got a smile on their face. I don't know what's going on, pastor, but I'm going to trust God. It's the only thing I got. And they've literally seen everything wiped out. But I know that their faith is growing because of the trial that they find themselves in. And this is the kind of growth that it's talking about. See, trials and tribulation and even persecution are not meant to break our faith. They're not meant to break our faith. They're meant to what? To build, to strengthen our faith. So, if you're facing a severe trial, take care. Take care. But here, in the Old Testament, you had Israel. You know they're whining and complaining, and um, it reminds me of the song. That Keith Green wrote, and the song is called "So You will Want to Go Back to Egypt." If you've never heard the song, look it up. I'm sure you can find it online. It's an incredible song. I was going to read a portion of it. Uh, Keith Green was a musician who died in a plane crash, but he, he incredible pianist and uh, evangelist and whatnot. But his he, and he wrote this song, and I thought and he came from Jewish roots, so he knew what he was talking about. It says, "So you want to go back to Egypt, where it's warm and secure." Are you sorry you bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? You wanted to live in the land of promise. But now it's getting so hard. Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? Eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Oh, what breath for dining out in style. My life's on the skids, building the pyramids. Well, there's nothing to do but travel. And we sure travel a lot. Because it's hard to keep your feet from moving when the sand gets so hot. (laughs) And in the morning, it's manna hotcakes. We snack on manna all day. We sure had a winner last night for dinner. Flaming manna souffle. Well, we once complained for something new to munch. The ground opened up and had some of us for lunch. <laughs> oh, such fire and smoke. Can't God even take a joke? Huh? No. So you want to go back to Egypt where your friends wait for you? You can throw a big party and tell the whole gang of what they said was all true. And this Moses acts like a big shot. Who does he think he is? Well, it's true that God works lots of miracles. But Moses thinks they're all his. Well, we're having so much trouble now. Why did he get so mad about that cow? That golden calf. Moses seems rather idle. He just sits around. He just sits around and writes the Bible. Oh, Moses, put down your pen. Oh, no, manna again? And the song ends with this. Manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patty, but manna bread. I read that to you because it's a good picture of what it means to have your faith tried. We're all, to some degree, having our faith tried. And here, the apostle Paul says he's praising God because their faith was what? Growing abundantly. Growing abundantly. It's an intense compound word in the original language, which means increased beyond measure. Has that little hooper H U P E R, in front of the root word, which means even more so. Growing beyond what could even be expected. And Paul's joy was deeply satisfying because even though they were going through all this persecution and having all these conflicts in their life, he was confident that their faith was genuine and therefore it was growing. And he even prayed. If you look back at, at chapter 3 in verse, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, he prays. He says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. And then he says this, and supply what is lacking, guess what, in your faith. They're a model church, but they still were lacking something in their faith. And Paul is praising God here because he's saying, hey, you know what? My prayer's being answered. My prayer is being answered. Timothy's report revealed that Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians had been answered. So we have a healthy church that's distinct from the world. It's bathed in the grace and peace of the gospel. It has an increasing faith. But fourthly it has a love one for another look at what it says in verse 3 there the second half of it it says not only faith but and the love of every one of you for one another and it's increasing that word increasing has the same connotation as the other word it's like more than you would even know or expect See, increasing love for one another flows out of a growing faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, when you go through something with someone, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't even matter if you know that person. Okay? Say you're out on the freeway and you get in an automobile accident. It's nobody's fault. It's just weather or whatever. And, you, and both families are affected. You know why? You're, you're connected. You know, you, you went through something together, something Traumatic. I mean, think of the people that died in 9-11. I mean, they're connected. They have memorials every year, right? Or school shootings or whatever the parents get together. You're connected. When tragedy strikes, it often breaks down those barriers, and it, it supplies a love that you, you, you otherwise wouldn't have for one another. This love grows out of this growing faith in the Lord Jesus who commanded us to love one another even... As he has loved us, he tells us, which is a hard thing to do. Paul talked about their love back in chapter 1 of verse 3. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and what labor of love. And he prays that it would increase and abound. And again, he commented, urging them to excel even more in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And now he hears the message from Timothy. Their love is just super abounding. It's amazing. What does this mean? This means that we never arrive at a point in our Christian lives where we just kind of plateau in our faith. Or we plateau in our love for one another. That's that's not the case. The Bible says this faith, this love, should be ever-increasing. One preacher said this, we all tend to be like Linus. Remember Linus from the Charlie Brown? We love mankind in general, but we can't stand people in particular. (laughs) We love mankind in general, but we can't stand people in particular. See, the place where you can practice growing in love is with those who are closest in proximity to you every day whether that be your husband, your wife, your parent, your child. We always need to be growing in love. If you're single here today and you don't have a a spouse, practice on your friends, practice on your roommates, whoever you live with, your family members, whatever. It'd be good training for you for marriage. But what's the major block? What's the major obstacle in the road to love? What, what is it? It's, it's, it's what? Selfishness, right? It's selfishness. Um, you know, there's been many times in my life where I wanted to do something. It could have been watching a football game. It could have been Going out to eat, doing something. I want to do something, and something came in the way of that, and I had to make a decision. And to be honest with you, sometimes I made the right decision. Sometimes I said, "No, I'm going to go do it anyway," you know, because um, the selfishness was so so large, couldn't overcome it. But selfishness is always the major block to love. So to grow in love, you must think about what the other person's need the Bible says, more than yourselves. You must lay aside what? Your rights. You must lay aside your entitlements and sacrifice your time and your effort for the other person. As Paul told us about these two sisters who were having some kind of conflict in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. but in humility count others more significantly significant than yourselves ouch and by the way if you think you are more significant than others we have another problem none of us are more significant than anyone else we're all fallen sinners before a holy god Verse 4 says, let each of you not only look for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already there. We just don't always practice it. We don't always put it into practice. Or in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes here, verses 12 to 15, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then he says in verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, what do you do? Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14, he says, and above all, above all these things, put on what? Put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and then at the end of verse fifteen he says, and be thankful, be thankful. Some point out that Paul fails to thank God here and in Second in Thessalonians for their hope, as he did in First Thessalonians, verse 3, he says the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. And some people say, oh, did they lose their hope because he doesn't mention it? Well, really, it's implicit. It's here, you just don't see the word hope. Why? Because they were persevering through very difficult persecution and, and afflictions. And that word perseverance is the same Greek word for the steadfastness of hope. Back in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. So since they still had the effect, the steadfastness, we can assume that they still had hope. They didn't lose hope. I mean, if you lose hope, what is there? See, if you don't know Christ, you have no hope you have no hope. What is your hope? Coming to church? Trying to earn your way to heaven? Praying some more or feeding some more poor people or or doing whatever else you think are, are religious acts that try to earn God's favor? That's a dead end, my friend. It doesn't work. God tells us it doesn't work. The only way that we can have hope is to put our hope, our trust in Christ and in Christ, what? Alone. And when we do that, we have a hope that never ends. We have a hope that's, that's, that's in our hearts and in our minds when we go to bed. We have a hope that's in our hearts and in our minds when we wake up. That hope remains there through the most difficult trials. I was vis- visiting with, with Buddy and, and Connie uh, just yesterday. And Connie's, or Buddy's dying of cancer. He's got cancer through his spine and I mean, this is a guy on our block that was out there every day sweeping everybody's gutter. I mean, he was just a work, work-a-maniac. He cut in other people's lawns, and I was like, buddy, you need to slow down. And No, no, I'm good. I'm good, pastor. You know, i got to go down and get the trash out of the, the street for the, the people down this. Just a servant to the community. And his family shared with me that he has made a profession of faith in Christ. I mean, he's at the end. It doesn't matter. I mean, he's going to die probably any day now. And when I was there yesterday, and, you know, <laughs> barely opening up his eyes. And Connie, she's got her own physical ailments, and, and you know, oh, Pastor Connie, we're so happy to see you. you know, Here's Buddy. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I mean, just in the couple of weeks that I've seen him because I was gone for Christmas, he's you know, lost a lot of weight and doesn't look good. but there's hope. There's hope. Why? Because he knows where he's going. She knows where he's going. Yeah, I'd kind of like go with him. (laughs) I wouldn't blame her. I'd go with him too if I could. That's the hope that Christ gives us. What does this world offer you? Nothing. Nada. What, to work all your life, to put a bunch of money in the bank and then die and have other people use it? I mean, really, what, what does the world offer you? We have to arrange our perspective. We have to understand our priorities. And it's this kind of perseverance that that goes right through those trials. Before we leave here, in verse 3 there, I want to ask ask yourself this question. Is my faith in God in the midst of trials growing? Is my faith growing in my trials? Or am I grumbling? Matthew chapter 5 tells us that our, our love for one another, for our brothers or our sisters... He speaks to this, and he says in verse 22, Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. For whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. God takes this very seriously. And then he says this, if you're offering your gift as an at the altar in there, you remember that your brother has something against you. What does he say? He says, Leave your gift there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. You know, sometimes we get so busy in ministry, we think we're doing all the stuff for God, and yet, you know, we have issues going on. <laughs> and we need to stop and we need to make things right before we continue. In the status quo. So we have this increased faith in God. We have this love for one another that's increasing. Fifthly here, quickly, he says it perseveres in hope in the midst of difficult trials. Verse 4, he says, therefore we ourselves boast about you. Think about it. He's telling them, man, we are just off our rocker, happy about what's going on, what God is doing in your lives and we're telling all the other churches all the other churches about you, about your steadfastness and about your faith through all your persecutions and all your afflictions and that you're enduring as I said earlier some of you are in the midst of trials cage rattling trials in your own lives and you don't, know how, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel frankly You don't know what's going to happen. But you know what? God is using that as a picture of his grace in your life. He's using that as you persevere, as you dig down and say, you know what? I just want to give up. This is discouraging. But you know what? Something won't let you give up. You persevere through the trial. And you persevere in hope. And you're prayerful and you're, you're, you're trusting God in the midst of these difficult trials because it's not automatic. You know, just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean, oh, when trials come, you just, oh, praise the Lord, you know. No. I mean, sometimes trials are so severe, they, they question your own faith. Have you ever been there? I've been there. I'm thinking, God, are you really there? Because if you're really there, this shouldn't be going on. <laughs> But it is. And you have to conclude, well, wait a minute, he's allowing it to go on for a reason. You just let him do your work. You, you just be patient in the trial. Quit whining to God, oh, deliver me, deliver me. Maybe he doesn't want to deliver you. Maybe he has a purpose for you dealing with an illness, dealing with a a sour relationship, dealing with wayward kids, dealing with a difficult job, dealing with financial woes, whatever. We could go on and on and on. Maybe God has a purpose in your life for these things. We could all go around the room and share testimonies where God has put us in a very difficult situation, and yet we persevered through it. And now we look back and we go, thank God for that. Thank God for that health report. Thank God for that divorce I had to go through. Thank God for whatever. Because it's made me a stronger believer. It's made me rely more upon him. But it's not automatic. Trials test the genuineness of our what? Of our faith. That's what they do. Jesus spoke about that seed sown on the the rocky soil that withers when the hot sun comes down and beats upon it. He said in verse 13 of Matthew, verse 20, he says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears, he hears the word, and he immediately receives it with joy. Oh, I'm so glad to be saved. Praise the Lord. Lord. What's it say? Yet he has no firm root in himself. But it's only temporary. And when affliction, here it comes, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, what happens? It says he immediately falls away. Was that a picture of a Christian who who is not a Christian anymore? No. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of someone who professed Christ because we make it so easy for people to do that today. Oh, come down the aisle, raise your hand. Everybody, close your eyes. You don't want to do this with eyes open. God forbid that. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so we make it very easy for people to put their faith in Christ. I don't think Christ ever made it easy. What did he say to his disciples? Hey, if you want to follow me, what do you got to do? Take up your cross, deny yourself daily, then maybe you can follow me. That's a world of difference from what people are telling lost people today. All their needs will be met in Jesus, so you'll be happy, you know, prosperity, all this stuff. Nope. The reason they fall away is because they never really knew him. False profession of faith. That's why it's good when you do evangelism. Don't, don't give more opportunity for false prof- professions of faith. I dial it up. I mean, I've had people tell me, well, well can I accept Christ? It's, well, I, I, it's up to you. More, are you going to help me? Is God doing a work in your heart? Don't you think the Spirit's perfectly capable of showing them that they're a sinner before a holy God and they need to rely on Christ? I think he's perfectly capable of doing that. So when you share the gospel with somebody, don't dumb it down. Share it the way it's intended to be shared. And God will bless that because he's the one that gives the life. See, the key to set down deep roots as this this seed didn't have in the word when times are easier. That's the key. You know, when you're, when you're coasting in your Christian life, that's when you should be spending more time in the Word of God and in prayer and in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. But what do we do? We do the opposite, right? I mean, everything's going good. Well, we're just coasting. Yeah, yeah I go to church once a week. Yeah, what's the deal? <laughs> but then all of a sudden, we get some tragic thing. Oh, man, I'm coming out to prayer meeting, pastor. I got to pray. You know? Well, Yeah. I mean, the the key is get the roots deep when when, when we're going good, when things are well. And so then when the the tragedy strikes or the tribulations come, we're firmly rooted in the word of God. In Jeremiah 17, he writes this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. And will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in the year of the drought, nor cease to yield its fruit. See, the key is trusting in the Lord and setting down deep roots daily in these smaller trials we encounter. So when the big trial comes, we're ready for it. The last thing here, the healthy church views its suffering in light of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. This is the evidence, he says, and we'll close with this. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you are also suffering. That word evidence there refers to proof, okay? What he's saying is God's righteous judgment to his chastening so that so that you would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you were suffering. God, God chastens his children. Hebrews 12, 7, God deals with believers as with sons. So what son is... Is there whom his father does not discipline, but those without discipline are illegitimate children and not sons? Hebrews 12 says. Now the suffering isn't the basis of their their salvation. You don't get saved just because you're being persecuted or because you're going through trials. right? It's, It's evidence that you are saved when you persevere through those trials. That's why believers can face these trials joyfully, knowing that God has equipped them to handle them for eternal glory. One commentator says this in that verse, he kind of writes his own verse, and he says, all of this gives evidence that God will pronounce a right verdict, which will result in you being considered worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. So when we go through severe trials, we tend to think that God has forsaken us, that he's not working in our lives or something's going wrong with his plan. But Paul is saying here just the opposite. He wants us to understand that suffering often means that God uses these things to work out his eternal purpose and prepare us for his kingdom. And so we need to, to make sure that, that our, our salvation is based on the trust that we have in, in this incredible God. We're not saved by saying, oh, well, we're, we're being persecuted, so I guess that means we're saved. No. no we're, we're, as we are persecuted, and we persevere through those trials, that's what this means. So ask yourself, are we a healthy church? You know, you go to the doctor for a checkup. Give yourself a checkup. Give our church a checkup. Are we standing distinct from the world? Are we bathed in God's grace and peace through the gospel? Are we growing in faith? Are we growing in love? Are we persevering in our trials? Are we viewing our trials in light of God's kingdom? Father, we ask you today to do work in our hearts as we conclude here. And Lord, we pray that we would just, first of all, just look around. I mean, we can definitely find broken hearts even in a small group like us here today. Maybe they're covered up by smiling faces or fancy clothes. But there's hurting souls here today. And the church should be a hospital for hurting souls, hurting hearts. We can look around this week to find suffering souls that we can encourage with affirming words of of your word and even actions. And secondly, we can reach out. It's not enough simply to look and notice that someone's in pain. It takes time out of your schedule. It takes an effort to reach out to them could be as simple as a pat on the back or a warm embrace or just a smile or just how you've been doing can i pray for you because we know that life can be messy And as a church we need to reach out and we need to touch others with the love of jesus christ and thirdly we can speak up not only do we need to take our own and others concerns to the lord in prayer but we also need to speak Words of encouragement to those within the family of God. We may not be able to answer the hard questions, why me or why now, that nag every one of us when we go through tough times. But we can definitely point people to even Solomon's principle in Proverbs twelve twenty five: anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. We need to speak up, speak a good word into someone's heart this week. And Father, we pray if there's anyone here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, that today might be the day that they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know that I've sinned before a holy God, and I need forgiveness. And as you go to the Lord and you confess, you, you say the same things about your sin that God says, that they're wrong. And you confess them to God. And you ask for his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He will hear that prayer and he will answer it. And he'll make you a new person in Christ. He'll forgive your sins, past, present, future. And then you can have the true joy of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would bless our food across the way as well and our fellowship one with another. Give us a good week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.